Welcome to another episode of Give Them the Hell Brigham. I'm back. Jeff, you are back from your trip, trip to Glacier. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, man. Glacier is incredible. So I've known that Glacier exists, but up until like a month ago, I never really thought about Glacier. That might be my favorite place on earth. That's a bold And statement. it was it was really cool. And I've been, you know, I've been to Madagascar, I've been to the Caribbean, I've been to all these tropical places. Glacier was cool. Like there's just a lot of stuff that you don't see. And going to the Sun Road is maybe the best national park experience that I could think of. Right? I mean, you can go out and hike at Glacier. There's a million hikes. Um, but going to the Sun Road has a lot of that same kind of just really like awesome, total, you know, awe-defying type things that you see at a national park, but they have it right on a road that you just get to drive on. It's it's great. There's other cool stuff to see if you want to hike and you want to spend a week there. But uh, yeah, Glacier, it was great. How was your time off with your previous priors? Congratulations. You are officially a father of two. Yes. How do you finally. feel? It's, uh, it's different. I mean, we've only, so my daughter, my mother-in-law took our daughter to um, my sister-in-law's house. So she was with my wife's sister and her family for the whole last week. So we came home because we didn't, I was the only one that was allowed to go into the hospital with everything going on. Didn't know how long we were going to be there with everything. So she came into town, took our daughter left. So we got a full week just with us and the baby to kind of settle in the groove and get things figured out. Um, you know, so he, she came home yesterday and was excited to see us. We tried to sit her on the couch and be, you know, this is your baby brother. Do you want to hold him? She held him for two seconds, then saw her stuffed Mike Trout doll on the ground and was like, <laughs> I want to hold baby. She was like baby Mike and wanted to hold the Mike Trout doll. And that's what she's been running around with since then. So she could not care less. She thinks everything, all dolls and all children under the age of five are babies. And this is just another one of those. So we'll see, you know, we'll see what he comes to in, you know, a month when she's tired of, the baby being around and it's not just to play time with your cousin anymore. And it's not the neighbor down go. the street that you see on a walk. It's he's not going away. My daughter. Uh, so I have three daughter was first and then two sons. Um, so we had son number two. So my daughter knows that she has a brother when she found out that kid number three was going to be a boy. She threw herself onto the ground at the doctor's office and started to scream no, 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 I already have a brother, and I don't like him. So now they're good friends. It's been two years. Uh, Dax is almost two, and Malin's gotten over it. So, you know, that progression comes. So there's hope. Eventually, your son will win the heart of your daughter, or at least, I think, be elevated above the Mike Trout doll. I think it's going to happen. I mean, how can you not love anything related to Mike Trout, though? That is true. So even this morning when she was sitting on my lap and she like saw on my phone, she pointed at my phone and said, watch Mike, watch Mike, because she wanted to watch (laughs) my chat highlights. So obviously I am a fantastic parent that my 20-month-old daughter, that's what she wants to do in the morning. Um, Yeah, you're doing well. So Except the angels, man. I just, they're never going to win anything. They're never going to go anywhere. They're going to, Perpetually uh, what, have really good players. What was that, that, from your Braves won a World Series? Uh, but the Braves go to the playoffs. I mean, they're there. 
the Angels, yes. the Angels, they've been there like three years in a row. <laughs> They're going to win again this year. I'm going to start a GoFundMe to get a bullpen, and then that will fix everything. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. When the Angels are turning to Julio Tehran to fix their rotation, you've got problems. Well, As a yeah. lifelong Julio Tehran fan, I can tell you you've got problems. Yeah, that's yes, that's true. So it's the pitching is always a struggle. So we the approach this year was to try to score twenty runs a game. It's not working out <laughs> so well. But the so we do have a leaning into the topic of Major League Baseball. We don't have a Hellion of the week, but maybe Come a on, people. We need a going to a, a going to hell of the week. Maybe I don't know. We, yeah, what we'd call it, but it's the Miami Marlins. Even though this it story is. is like a week and a half old, I'm still mad about it. Yeah, the Miami Marlins, they go out to well, they go out to a club. I think everybody could admit that, except for Derek Jeter, who claims that they were going milk out and coffee. for milk and coffee. They go out, they get COVID, then they give it to a whole bunch of their teammates, and then baseball is on the brink of shutting down once again. So that was frustrating. The Miami Marlins... If you guys don't know much about the Miami Marlins, now look, we recognize this is a BYU podcast, not a Miami Marlins podcast, but the Miami Marlins suck at everything that they do. And it is they, they, they suck so bad that it's worthy of us talking about the Miami Marlins. I'm a Braves fan. I lived in Atlanta growing up. I was there during the World Series runs. I mean, I, I'm a big Braves fan, have been for my entire life. Part of being a Braves fan is playing in the National League East. I have gotten to know a lot of the Miami Marlins over the years. And let me just tell you some of the stupid things that the Miami Marlins have done. They traded Miguel Cabrera. They traded Mike Piazza. They traded Giancarlo Stanton. They traded Christian Yelich. They've traded Kevin Brown. They traded Gary Sheffield. I could go on and on and on. In fact, 23 of the top 25 players in war and wins above replacement in Miami Marlins history, the Marlins have traded 23 out of 25. The only two, one of them had his career cut short because of, uh, because of injury. And the other one was Jose Fernandez who died. They would have traded both of them. I'm certain, absolutely certain of it. The other 23, they did trade. And then they sold their club to Derek Jeter, who's clueless who the first thing he did was trade everybody that he had and then ban Marlins man. The only redeeming thing about the Marlins was Marlins man. They ban him from buying season tickets. They're a mess. They're a clown show. And you know that they're a clown show because at one point their home run sculpture that was pink and yellow and orange and had dolphins. That was at one point a good idea. They built a brand new stadium and that sculpture made it you know there there were a bunch of executives at the marlins executive meeting that said this sculpture is good it's it's mind-boggling so the miami marlins yeah going to hell of the week i don't know whatever you want to call it they're the anti-hellions of the week and they're awful and they are very much the perfect recipient of the first anti-hellion of the week award and i don't want to this is a sports podcast. This is a cooking podcast with sports sprinkled in. Let's be honest. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. 
and I, so I don't want to get political, but you talking about the Barlets just now, everything you said about how awful it is and the executives in charge, I kind of feel like that also described the 2020 presidential election. So I'm just going to leave that out there. We don't need to run with that. We'll start a different political show to get ourselves in trouble, but it's a mess. Come on, America. I, this is this really see. all, that's not all we got. I did see one. I, I think it was maybe on Twitter. So maybe some of you guys have already seen it, but it was the perfect picture of, uh, of a trash can that had a lid on top of it that uh, the recyclables went on the left side and the regular trash went on the right side. Somebody stuck their hand in the trash side and went over and stuck their hand back out of the recycled side, meaning you're dividing your trash and just thinking you're recycling. It's all going into one waste bin, right? It's just garbage. That is the 2020 election. And that is really politics in general. You can think that you're recycling. You can think you're right. You can think that you're just throwing away trash. But at the end of the day, everything just goes into this pit of awfulness that is a garbage can. That is politics. You're spot on. Quarantine Kitchen, because this is a cooking show with sports mingled uh, throughout the throughout the show, um, I know that you're excited about what you've got this week. And so I'm going to just very quickly talk about what I've made and then have a – uh, really a quick review of something that may surprise you. So chicken wings. I can eat chicken wings every day. I, I love chicken I wings. Like. Yeah, never. Uh, my favorite way to cook chicken wings, Weber kettle. You get your vortex grill. You get the, you know, the coal super hot right in the middle. You cook all the chicken wings around it. It's perfect. I also have a Rectech Matador that uh, it, it's, a, it's like a cowboy walk. And so what I like to do is I like to smoke cook those wings on that Weber kettle. And then I fill up my cowboy walk with some oil and then do a quick flash fry afterwards so that you get smoked and fried wings. It's great. There's lots of great things with wings. Now here's the, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's an unpopular opinion. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody have an opinion on this, but the best the best? Is that the right way? I, they're up there. They're in contention for the best wings that you can get from a restaurant. Famous Dave's. Famous Dave's struggles with just about everything, but okay. their wings, they have mastered chicken wings. Nobody orders chicken wings when you go to Famous Dave's, but I challenge each of you to find a Famous Dave's and order the wings. They only have them as appetizers. As far as I know, you're not ever going to see them. I don't think they have them as an entree. It's only an appetizer. And so you have to get like the double wing appetizer to get, you know, 15 of them or whatever. Their wings are phenomenal. They're absolutely phenomenal. So Famous Dave's, they're everywhere. They're marginal. They're average at just about everything that they do. But do yourself a favor. They're on DoorDash if you don't want to go to a Famous Dave's. Find some famous Dave's wings, and they're going to—they're going to surprise you with how good they are. So they're good. Obviously, it's not the best wing you've ever had in the world, but if you—you're out, and sometimes you just don't feel like cooking, and you just want to go sit down, and you want to know what you're getting, and it's like you know exactly what you're getting. You can count on it. It's old faithful, and that's a famous Dave's wing. Uh, I think it's better than that. I mean, I don't know that it's the best wing I've ever had in my life, but it is objectively a very good chicken wing. Okay, Famous Dave's, if you are hearing this and want to sponsor this, we will continue to promote your wings. We, will, we won't talk bad about the rest of the menu, but we will not hype the rest of the menu, but we will promote yeah. your wings. Yeah, we will. We, we, we will, will not lie to our fan base. We are honest. Right. And 
as far as Give Em Hell Brigham listeners will know, Famous Dave's is a wing shop, and that's all that you guys serve. They did actually open, Famous Dave's opened, like, they tried to do a rebrand thing and opened a restaurant in Provo last year. I don't know if you knew this, and it was like, they set it up as something barbecue, and but the font was similar, and it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of weird. It looks like a Famous Dave's or whatever, and so... I don't remember who it was. Someone I know went and ate there and was like, oh, this new place opened in town. Thought it was like a local place, whatever. But the website kind of was corporate feeling. And then the charge on their card actually hit from Famous Dave's Provo. Oh, that's funny. Have and you then, seen that uh, Chili's is doing on DoorDash? So there's a, now a new DoorDash company. Oh, I saw Chuck E. Cheese doing this too. Yeah, Chuck E. Cheese is doing it too. If you go and you order It's Just Wings on DoorDash, you're getting it from Chili's. They're just Chili's Wings. They're not and, good, but yeah. they would make you feel like it's just this up-and-coming wing restaurant that you haven't tried yet. No, it's Chili's Takeout, and it's trash. I don't – my wife and I were talking about this the other day. It's like every okay, every chain at some point started as like a local mom-and-pop place that kind of got big, you know, got some money coming in, either franchised or just started expanding like crazy. And so it makes sense that, you know, usually when they get a little bigger, they start to go downhill a little bit. Cough, cough, Mo Betta's cough, cough. But they <laughs> – <laughs> they, you know, they start to go downhill and it's quality drops, whatever. I respect them having a good product and making a lot of money. That's beautiful. But they, I don't understand how Chili's and Applebee's got to the point where they are now. I, I can get on board with Chili's. I mean, they have good appetizers and they have a couple of like staples. Like they're, they do have the Southwestern egg rolls. Those are pretty good. Those are good. They have their chicken bacon quesadillas. They've got the honey chicken crisp, chi- the honey chipotle chicken crispers. Like it's just a chicken strip with a good sauce, but they're solid. I can't find anything redeemable about Applebee's. It's absolute trash. We went there because my grandmother, my grandmother lives in Lewiston, Utah, like farm town, Utah, and her idea of going out because they never do it is just going to Applebee's. Like that's what they do. They go into Logan and they go to Applebee's. There's, that's one of like three restaurants on their rotation and they go out to eat, you know, three times a year. So she gave us a gift card to Applebee's. So my wife and I went not too long ago because it was free. I, I, I wouldn't even do it for free. It was so bad. Everything about it, the service, the food, the, the little games that we were playing to try to entertain ourselves. It was just awful. We're way off track, man. I know that you have a quarantine kitchen that you want to talk about. Yes. And I want you to talk about it. So I do want to just review. Last week, you ta- I listened to the show, and you talked about Carolina pork, which is good. So it's, I just want to edu- kind of further educate some of the listeners of our show about this, of how there are different styles of pork in the Carolinas, and there are different sauces. And so even if you're in the Carolinas, for one, barbecue is a noun. It is not a verb. You do not barbecue something. You smoke meat and that becomes barbecue. And the contraption that you smoke it on, that is a, you have a smoker or a grill. That is not a barbecue. So it's barbecue is specifically the meat. And even if you just hear in this, in the Carolinas where it's very pork heavy, if you just say, I'm eating barbecue, pulled pork is the default. Unless you specify something else, you say, oh, so-and-so is making barbecue. It's, that means you are having pulled pork unless they say- they're doing brisket or ribs or smoking chicken, whatever, or barbecue chicken. It'll be like just, they have barbecue, that's pulled pork. Do you have a barbecue? Like, do you have your friends over for a barbecue? Uh, so you would come over and 
you'd have like serve barbecue, whatever, if you have like party. So if you are grilling in the backyard or something, that is a cookout. Ah. That is not, that is not. Yeah. So it's very, you know, the semantics of the whole operation is very different. Yeah. But, this is, so what you were describing last week, that was very Eastern style. I'm not a huge Eastern fan. Um, you know, or the chop. So then you have Western North Carolina will do more of, it's not, not like a Kansas city sauce where it's like sweet baby raised and it's just basically brown high fructose corn syrup. They don't do that, but it's, it is more of a tomato based, a little bit sweeter, but it will be a little, they'll have a little more heat to it than a, uh, than a Kansas city or Texas sauce. And so that is, you know, they call that either Piedmont or Lexington style, but then you get into South Carolina, you got South Carolina style and barbecue sauce in South Carolina is, is mustard based. You kind of, they call it gold sauce or Dixie mm-hmm. sauce. And you get, and I, I do like me a good gold sauce and uh, it's, is wonderful. And then even I, lately the biggest thing, my biggest kick that I've been into is chicken with Alabama white sauce. Have you, I don't know if you've ever made a white yeah, sauce. Yeah. yeah. No, I so, haven't. Like, if you go find on the amazing ribs.com website, they have the recipe for the Bob Gibson's Alabama white sauce. And it's like, it is like a very vinegary buttermilk sauce yeah, that you good. just drench your chicken in and it is fantastic. But Going off of your, that is a very, very long tangent back circling around mm-hmm. to the pig wing. Have you ever had a pig wing? Or I have had pig wings. wings. I have had pig wings. I love pig wings. Pig wings are stupid expensive. And that's, I don't even know where you, did you have to go to the butcher to find them? Uh, I had them at a restaurant. I was, where was I? I was in Texas. I can't remember where I was. What couldn't have been Texas. There's so much beef in Texas. Uh, I was traveling for work. And I was with somebody, it was somewhere down south, I can't remember where I was, and I had pig wings at dinner. So I've never had like home-cooked pig wings, no. Right. So I, I've also only had them at a restaurant. I've looked for them. I've, I called a butcher around the corner for me. They said they can get them, but they're expensive. But so the pig wing is a delicious treat that I wish everybody to be able to experience once in their life, at least once. So it is almost as the cross between a rib and a wing is what, how I would describe it to somebody because it comes from the lower shank. So it's off the leg of the, of the pig, but it's got a bone running through it sticking out. So it's almost like a drum stick looking thing, but it's cooked the way. So it's pork, but the meat is very similar to a rib. Uh, you know, not a baby back. Like if you're looking like a, you know, you're t- we're talking a good meaty rib, but it's cooked the way you cook a wing. And so it is like a cross between a rib and a wing and it's wonderful. And they need it's to be really, it's really close to like a rib tip, like you, that you would get on yes. a, a spare rib, but uh, but it's bigger. There's more meat. The bone isn't that like weird squishy tendony bone, but the but the type of meat that you're eating is really similar. You know what? I think there is a place. Now that I'm sitting here and thinking about it, um, what is it called? Wing nuts. I think they're. I don't know if they're a local Utah chain or if they're a national thing, but they do bake wings. Um, and they're okay, but they do pig wings as well. I've had pig wings there. Um, they're phenomenal. I kind of, when I think of it, I look at it, I, I, I kind of compare it more to like a bone in chicken thigh than maybe a wing. Like that's kind of the impression that I get, but, uh, no, absolutely. You are 100% correct. They are delicious and it is the most underappreciated meat that I can think of. I think just because people have never heard of it. I've never yeah. heard of it until I saw it on the menu. I was like, I don't know what this is. And then the waiter was like, oh, you got to try those. They are good. And I was like, okay, give me yeah. give me some pig wings. And 
So now we are 30 minutes into our show. We have yet to talk about anything football related, but we've covered multiple sports and multiple food items. And we have a couple of before. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. Before anybody gives us guff about, we haven't talked about anything sports related. Do you have, I just, it's so hard to talk about things sports related right now. There are no sports. We should be. We should be. We don't even know BYU is going to play. Yeah, practice has started. And I've had this question asked to me already. So we're on day two of real practice. And people want like detailed breakdowns of who looks good at the quarterback position. Who's looking good at the running backs. Guys, they haven't even put pads on yet. Nobody looks good yet. You know what I mean? Like there's first impressions. You know, Chris Jackson has looked great. Cody Epps has come in ready to play but that's all based off of just like conditioning at this point that nobody's put pads on nobody's been hit yet it's it's still early enough that you can't really get into what's going on at practice and furthermore practices are closed to the world BYU's been closing practices more and more even to the media uh, over the last few years but now that they have an excuse to close practices with corona it's really really closed down so it's hard to talk about practice and the schedule has been absolutely blown to smithereens that we don't know when or if BYU is going to play. And every time you think you know that BYU is going to play, it changes. I think there's going to be a football season. I don't know if BYU is going to be a part of that football season. I just, I, it's yeah, getting really hard to find out how that's going to work because everybody wants to schedule games in September. All these conferences are going conference only. And even the ones like the AAC and the Mountain West, you know, some of the G5 conferences that are saying, hey, you can go have out of conference games, they're moving up their conference schedule to start, you know, the third week of September. I don't know when BYU is going to find games. It's, it's getting really, really tough. And it's, I mean, we're at the point now where I think the MAC is the only conference that hasn't said what they're going to do. So Conference USA, the American, and the Sun Conference USA – and the American have said they're going full bore. I think the Sun Belt and the Mountain West have both said they're doing plus two um, out of conference games. And the MAC we're still waiting on. All P5 are going, well, sorry, the P5 are going conference only, but the ACC and the Big 12 are doing plus one. Um, but the ACC, it either has to be in state or it has to be a home game. So they're not letting people travel. So maybe pick up one of those. But all of these. You know, like you said, it's, they're all trying to front load and move their conference games into September so that way they can get those out of the way. If they need a pause, they can cancel those non-conference games in, the, in October and then finish up in November is what they are shooting for. And it, it makes it hard for BYU to find games. I, would, I mean, we have five games left on the schedule um, with Houston, Boise, San Diego State, Utah State, and NIU are the five games that are left on the schedule. If we could pick up, you know, Colorado State, Fresno, Memphis, Cincinnati, and Tulsa, I'm totally okay with that schedule getting thrown together right now. That won't happen because it's not – openings aren't going to be there. Things aren't going to happen, and it's, you know, it's going to be really tough. But if you are somebody who thinks that this season and this schedule getting blown up is evidence that BYU needs to go back to the Mountain West Conference because independence is not working, please – Hit pause on the show or stop. Go unsubscribe in whatever podcast thing you listen to and just walk away. Because it's, you know, 
that I don't understand how you could come to that conclusion because nobody knows what the hell's going on. And the season's not going to happen. Even once the season starts, they're going to do schedule changes or we're going to get three weeks into the season and stuff is going to get canceled anyway. Like it's not, things are not going to happen at all the way that they're intended to. So if you're basing the merits of independence based off of this season, then, you know, it's, you got to look at things in a bigger picture and, you know, try to see that it's just not happening at all. And that's not anything to base anything off of. So I don't know. I think the biggest thing right now is that the G5 conferences, I really, the American is the smartest conference, I guess conference USA as well in all of this, because they're saying we are playing our full schedule as if nothing is wrong because they lost out on all of their P5 money games. Those schools need those money games. And so if the P5 schools say, well, we're not playing these games because we can't because of the virus, but then the American comes up and says, well, we replaced you with Ball State or, you know, Troy, whatever. We got some other G5 out of conference games and we managed to play a full 12 game schedule. How's that going to, you know, those G5, the American schools are going to go try to get their money from their P5 counterparts for those money games. And there's not really a leg to stand on when one party says, well, we couldn't do it because it wasn't safe. And so that's why we had to go to conference only. And the other one says, well, we played 12 games anyway. So you canceled this. It was one-sided. So you need to pay the million dollar cancellation fee or whatever. And so that's what they're trying to do. So if they can fit that, maybe the only reason that they try to shove things down into, you know, at least keep a couple openings in September, because I mean, we're only going to get a 10 game season anyway. So if we can get two games in September and then have two buys and then load everything into October, November, maybe that's what happens. And that's not the end of the world. Even one game in September and, you know, then low push everything else down. And maybe we only play nine games instead of 10, like everyone else. It's not the end of the world. That's better than no football for me. I think, you know, at this point, I just want to see games happen, but they, it will be really interesting to follow, but the mountain West, what are you doing, man? You're trying to fit your starting the season a month late to try to fit eight games and two non-conference games. So your non-conference things were supposed to be in September anyway, but you have to reschedule those later in the season. You're, kind of hurting your legal case of, well, no, we proceeded with things as normal because, you know, we thought the virus was fine. And now you're not giving yourself any wiggle room of, dude, start September 1st. And if you need to cancel those non-conference games, get four games done, take three weeks off in October, get your last four games done, just do a conference slate and call it done. But you have no, you can't cancel a game. My my favorite part of what the Mountain West did today is they said, hey, we're going to play eight conference games and, schools you can still go and find two out of conference games but even though we've been working on this long enough to come up with that plan we can't tell you really when or who or how those games are going to happen so good luck finding your out of conference games like they can't even go and schedule it they don't even know when they're supposed to play their eight games that they're mandated to play and so i don't know if they're saying go find your games as long as they're after and we will work the conference schedule around that or what and so if they did that then that would be beneficial for BYU um, but if you know I don't see how you know I don't see how it's going to work to where they manage because you can't say find two games but you don't know which states are open you know so, someone's got to something's got to get scheduled first you got to do the conference say these weeks are scheduled for conference weeks or you know get some type of agreement with another league to say we're going to leave the third Saturday in October open for a crossover special you know between the two leagues but yeah the mountain west 
they need a new commissioner. That league is. I how is Hare how... Thompson, man? How is he still there? You know what I mean? Like he he lost BYU, TCU, and and Utah. Nobody's gonna blame him for TCU and and uh, and Utah doing what they did, but he lost his three biggest programs. Then he had to bend over backwards and give Boise absolutely everything that they wanted in order to keep Boise. And then they, he pissed off Boise to the point that Boise could easily start looking around in a couple of years. And he's left with the remnants of what was the, Mount, the original Mountain West Conference in Wyoming, New Mexico, Colorado State. San Diego State. I mean, those programs have some up years, and, and, and they're fine programs. But how how are those university presidents, the you know wh- whoever the athletic directors, how are they looking around and saying, you know what, Craig Thompson, you've done a stellar job. We we want you forever. How is that happening? And yeah, even through their new TV deal, that's they uh, you know, garbage. They thought, oh, we're keeping neck and neck. You know, it's us and the American are the premier G5 leagues. They make less money. They're all on CBS Sports. They still caved in to give Boise everything that they wanted. And, you know, they I, – I don't understand that they're – those are all dying. If you just look at the Mountain West and the schools that are there and the locations that they're at versus the American. I know the American has been doing the P6 thing because they see themselves. Well, for one – and the Massey composite rating, which is that takes 118 different computer systems rankings and averages them out, the American Conference finished higher than the ACC last year. So they were legitimately P6. But for the last three or four years, they have been closer to the lowest P5 than they have been to the next G5. And especially if you take Boise State, like if they were to say, okay, Boise State and Air Force, come over and we're going to expand and like make a Western half of the conference, then it would definitively be they are closer to P5 than they are to the rest of those other four leagues. And it wouldn't be even close, but if you want to just look at the future of those, like where would you rather go? Would you rather go to Houston, Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Philadelphia, or Laramie, Albuquerque, Fresno? You know, I grew up in Baker. Logan. Sports. Logan. The like, you got Hawaii. That's nice. Players probably like going to Hawaii every other year. But it's, you know, it's the Mountain West just doesn't, there's nothing going for it. So we do it's have a, a mess. Shirt. If you go to givemhellbrigham.com, you can see our shirt, you know, that you can proudly wear that just says, returning to the Mountain West Conference is not a good idea. And if you there want you to let people know where you stand, you can purchase this. It will arrive packaged nicely for you and you can help support the show. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think we will see within the next, it has to be within the next week, we will get news of scheduling things coming out and i imagine that we are trying to get like unlv colorado state fresno state one of those three schools maybe two of them and then trying to get out of the american i mean looking at like because the american is trying to play a full 12 game schedule so they are front-loading games but they will be the ones who are trying to fill and all of those programs would rather play byu than have to fill it with the with ball state and so they or conference USA teams. So in conference USA is also doing a full 12 game slate. So they, you know, we may see a couple conference USA things come in. I personally, App I really State. Like, the App State, I hope it's App State. Dude, 
App State, I would love to see them play App State. I would love to see them play UNC Charlotte. I love, you know, the 49ers. Uh, that'd be a great game. And you can find a couple things. So it's really, if those schools are struggling, and they, that's the thing is BYU has money. If those schools are struggling and they need, you know, it's, we're not going to pay Northern Alabama to come up because FCS is probably going to get entirely shelved by the end of the week. If you are coming up, then, you know, give a, give a, pay game, a payday game to a Conference USA team, get them to come out. It's, you know, whatever we can say, hey, we will get you, we will pay you money in September. And that's really where it's going to be is I think we, instead of what we've seen in independence where the back half of the schedule has been really light because we've had struggles finding good teams in November, it's going to be more of the front half because it's say, okay, we can cut, you know, a half million dollar check to this conference USA team and the Sunbelt team. Now we have two games in September and then we can sprinkle the eight across, you know, the last two months of the season. And then week six, it's all getting canceled anyway. So it doesn't matter. But I think, <laughs> So, well, and you know, and for Power Five games, I mean, it's worth talking about. Maybe BYU gets lucky. Uh, there's only two conferences, right? There's the ACC and the Big Twelve. Uh, if BYU wants to take a road trip and try to get lucky and get a game there, they could. Uh, we've heard names like Iowa State, and we've heard names like Oklahoma State. We've heard names like Oklahoma that have floated around. Maybe that happens, and that would be great. If BYU gets more than one or two of those games, uh, that's then build Tom Homo a statue because it just looking at calendars, looking at requirements, it just doesn't make sense that that's going to happen. So if BYU gets one Power Five game, be thrilled. And at the end of the day, uh, I've written about this a few different times on Cougar Sports Insider. Uh, football during this pandemic. It isn't about status. It isn't about P5 versus G5 versus in. It's about survival. Like everybody just wants to make as much money as they can, hold on tight, and hope 2021 looks better. I mean, that's really the reality of where we're at. And we even have. If you look at those P5 games. So, I mean, there's 10 teams in the Big 12, and there's now 15 teams in the ACC since they added um, Notre Dame to their schedule for the season. So. We're looking at there's 25 total games available total and they're those they're still going to want to do their payday games so they're going to try to get the conference usa or sunbelt team or an american team in their own footprint and you know they will try to do that but it's like you said even just for the sake of getting a p5 game you know would you really rather play kansas instead of memphis or cincinnati right yeah or smu so it's just going strictly oh we got a p5 game it's just it's not a good measurement especially when you look at how bad the bottom half of the big 12 is and everybody in the acc not named clemson right it's true and, and so it's a tough spot it sucks look we have uh coming up later an interview that we recorded earlier with matt brown a lot of you guys know matt brown he's with extra points doing his newsletter uh his his expertise is really the off the field stuff of college athletics and he does it as well as anybody in the nation and we ask him about his thoughts on an upcoming season. And he's, he doesn't, you know, have a real optimistic outlook in general, but especially as it comes to BYU, as he talks about it, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting outlook of really the job that lies in front of Tom Homo. And people are going to blame Tom Homo if things don't pan out. People might blame independence, but you'll hear from Matt that you could have, you know, anybody. You know, Barack Obama could be your athletic director and Ronald Reagan could be the university president. 
it's still not going to happen given the current circumstance. Like it's just a weird time. We mentioned earlier, I'm a lifelong Braves fan. This week I watched Mike Soroka. He threw a pitch, he landed and he ruptured his Achilles. Nothing happened. He didn't, he'd thrown how many thousands of pitches has he thrown in his life? He didn't land it funny. He didn't do anything different. He threw a pitch, landed on his foot, ruptured his Achilles. It was a total freak accident. That is the baseball injury equivalent of what BYU is dealing with when it comes to scheduling in 2020. This isn't Independence's fault. This isn't Tom Holmo's fault. This is a once in a generation pandemic that has done unprecedented things to the landscape of college football that we haven't seen in decades. Uh, That's another thing we talk about with Matt. Since World War II, we haven't seen this kind of chaos in college football. So this, nobody can blame Tom Homo for whatever happens. And if things, if, if it's a positive outcome, he deserves to be praised. If BYU ends up saying, Hey, we're trying to play as many games as we can, but we can't, you can't blame Tom Homo when all of the conferences across the country are saying, Hey, we're done. We're not playing it. Or when health officials are saying, Hey, the virus is bad in our state. Uh, we're going to shut down college football in New Mexico or in Oregon, in you know Florida, wherever, right? You can't blame Tom Homo for that stuff. So crazy time. Uh, you know, as for what BYU has to do, I mean, try to secure as many games as you can, but um, recognize that even if they announce a 12-game schedule tomorrow, the likelihood that those 12 games are played is small. And the likelihood... I don't know. It, it's just a, it's a tough time. Like I say, I think there will be a football season for all the reasons that we've talked about over the last few weeks on this show. I just don't know exactly what that means for BYU going forward. And it's a tough time. It really but is. So they're trying, you know, they're trying, trying to have a football season. They're practicing now. Uh, there is some news on the roster front news just tonight. Uh, Hinkley Ropati. We've talked about Hinkley Ropati a few times on the show. He committed out of Cerritos Junior College. Uh, what was that, Garrett? Like a month ago he committed. And he, he was initially planning on playing out his uh, sophomore season at Cerritos and then transferring to BYU afterwards. Junior colleges canceled their football season, and now Ropati doesn't have anywhere to play this fall. Devontae Henry Cole transferred from BYU to Utah State. And quick side note, if you heard Kalani Sataki's um, soundbite, his quick interview when he was asked about Devontae Henry Cole, uh, he's not worried about it. Plain and simple. We've reported it on our message board. There was serious... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. I paraphrased it even on the message board, but... Uh, <laughs> There were serious questions about Devontae Henry Cole's commitment to playing football. I think that's the best way to put it. When it came to player-run practices, um, look, there were some guys that were showing up every day, and there were some guys that showed up maybe once or twice. I'll let everybody read into that what they want to read into that, right? Um, so when, when Satake says, yeah, he came to our PRPs and he saw what we had in the room and we're going to be just fine, he's not that worried about it especially if they're able to add Hinkley Ropati. And that's the news tonight. It looks like that is going to happen. 
I believe that there's a picture from Ropati's Instagram floating around of, of his official jersey. I think that's a little premature to say that it's confirmed based on the conversations that I've had uh, a little more than an hour and a half ago. There are still some hoops that, that, uh, that need to be cleared. I don't know if those are admissions hoops or, or if that's roster and scholarship count hoops, but there are still some hoops that I know need to be cleared out of the way before Ropati can be officially added. So you may not see his name officially announced by BYU for a day or two or maybe sometime next week, but they are trying to add Hinkley Ropati to the roster, that would be a big deal. I think he would immediately be one of the top two running backs in the room. I mean, he's really, really talented. So if you missed what we covered him, um, I don't remember what the exact episode was. Uh, was two or three episodes ago, because I was on there talking to you about it. Um, but he go back and get that a listen. And uh, we kind of compared his game that he's built very similar to Lopini Katoa, but he runs – about as he runs as hard as anyone we've seen come through the door since Jamal. Um, and you know, just he he's just an angry, hard runner, which is something I love to see out of a running back. Um, so I love, I'm glad he got through the door. I am impressed by the staff and the recruiting staff that they managed to get things worked out with admissions to get him through the door in the span of about two weeks. Um, you know, that is a big get for the program and shows really the great work that Jack DeMooney and Jason Ayu are doing on the recruiting side of things and working with the powers that be. Cause it's not just, I mean, it's not just, Oh, you got offered and then you committed and then you go and you have to get admitted to the university and they, you know, Reggie Bush wanted to go to Stanford and they said, Nope, sorry, you don't have the grades to come here or whatever. And so it's, you know, they were able to work on short notice in the middle of the pandemic and figure out, you know, the university staffing is weird, whatever they managed to get it done. So that's great. Um, the last little bit that we have on recruiting is that Nathan Hoke officially committed. Um, you know, we, there were some words shared by both of us about how this news initially broke a few weeks ago and the style in which it was released. And, you know, kids, they get one chance in their life. Most of them, you know, well, one relatively nobody gets the opportunity to even have a story like this. They like to. And so we want a Cougar sports insider want to give, them every opportunity to have their own story and have their own moment and share that news publicly with, you know, in the way that they want to. And so we will never out scoop a kid, you know, to share that publicly. You'll see Jeff put a crystal ball in. You may hint at good news on the board where if you've been following along closely, you can connect the dots, whatever. But it was out publicly a few weeks ago. Nathan publicly released his own statement um, that he is excited to come. Um, out from the Pittsburgh area and plan. Where do you see him fitting in? So he's 6'3", 235 pounds, 225 pounds, 235 pounds, I think, today, maybe 225. He's a big that linebacker. I'll get you. The COVID-19, packing on the COVID-19. He's a big linebacker, and he's the son of Chris Hoke. I mean, Chris Hoke was a defensive lineman in the NFL, so clearly the genes are there to to put on more weight. When I, when I see Nate Hoke play, I'm reminded of Peyton Wilgar for a lot of different reasons. Now, I think that Wilgar is superior in coverage, and that's why Wilgar is going to stick around and play linebacker. 
But when it comes to size and athleticism and, and quickness off the ball, Wilgar has all the makings of a really good defensive end. I mean, he could be very successful as a defensive end. And I think that's where Hoke ultimately ends up. Um, a lot of people, at least here locally, have looked at Jaden Ayu out of Orem High School and wondered why BYU is not in on him. And I think that's still a fair question. But I do think that Nate Hoke and Jaden Ayu are really similar in terms of style in the sense that they are linebackers in high school, but they are big linebackers that probably project to move up as defensive ends. Um, I think that's where he falls. I think that by the time he goes on a mission and comes back, he's 255, 265 pounds, and, and he's not going to have the speed to play linebacker. Peyton Wilgar did not go on a mission, right? He, he joined as a true freshman. He's already 245 pounds playing in his redshirt sophomore year. He's gaining weight. He's getting bigger. I mean, it's conceivable to think that by 2021, uh, Peyton Wilgar has outgrown the linebacker position. So I think that there's a lot of similarities with their body style, their physical makeup, and the way with which they play the game. Um, and ultimately, that, that two years of being on a mission, I think, benefits Hoke physically enough that, that he ends up moving up and playing defensive end. We have uh, really a fun interview with Matt Brown. We mentioned it earlier. We want to play that for you now. Uh, Matt is excellent in so many different things. Um, a lot of you may be familiar with Matt Brown. He's, he's you know, interviewed here locally quite a bit. Uh, great stuff. I think we get into some of the stuff that he normally doesn't get to get into when he jumps onto local shows. Uh, talking about the national landscape of college football during this pandemic. So we're going to go ahead and play that now, and we will give you our thoughts on, on some of Matt's comments uh, as soon as the interview's over. Again, what a great interview with Matt. I, uh, you know, I was really kind of just thinking about what he said of, I didn't realize that the FCS was going to get completely nixed and that was really already on the forefront. And it's, you know, kind of just, I don't think we're obviously not, we've said this over and over again, we're not going to see a full season coming down the pipe. And it really is just BYU is in a really hard place and it's nothing. It's not, obviously it is a downside of independence, but it's a it's not anything it's, that it's anybody worth, had control. Nobody had right. any control over it. No, we had no plan on it. It's not like this happens every five years where we get left out in the dust. It's this, you know, has a similar scenario has not happened since World War II, and it probably will not happen again for a very, very, very long time. And so it's not anything to base, you know, where you pivot the athletic department around. And it's, I think, the most kind of disheartening thing about that is that, you know, BYU is obviously they're making some cuts because it's, you know, losing revenue is never a great thing. But BYU is one of the most financially stable programs, athletic departments in the country, and schools are feeling this. But as soon as they this blows over, if they make it through, they're going to start doing the exact same crap that they were doing before. Even schools like Clemson is posting like, oh, we need money because we have a shortfall and we're not going to be able to pay our bills after Dabo just got a $70 million contract and they're doing $60 million in upgrades to their stadium. They're saying, oh, we don't have funds, sorry. And so it's they, there's a major cash flow problem and the entire – collegiate athletic system is a giant house of cards and it is going to blow up in the NCAA's face as soon as the P5 decides to say, we're done with you. You know, it's really interesting. You mentioned the house of cards and there's so many factors 
that uh, that are at play here. Um, when you think of all the financial aspect of it that you just talked about, that Matt talked about, I mean, that's coming. That's a storm that is coming. And then you couple that with kind of this players movement that we've seen really over the last year or two with the NIL name, name image likeness stuff. Uh, you know, people wanting to, or players wanting to be compensated for their play, but now you're seeing the, the PAC 12 United and you're seeing a, players groups come out and making demands or threatening to go on strike and really acting as an unofficial union. Right. And you're seeing similar things in the big 10 that they have a players group that's coming out and making demands. Now their demands seem to be more focused on uh, health and safety during COVID, but it's still the players kind of dictating what the conference and the universities are going to do. And it's really interesting. All of these things are happening at the same time as one of the most you know, crazy uh, situations that college football has seen in decades and nearly 100 years. College football, I think, personally, is going to be vastly different in 2025. And I don't think it's going to be the game that changes. I think it is going to be who survives this. I really think that's what it is. Players want more control. Certain schools aren't going to be able to give them more control, right? A school like Cal that is struggling with admissions, like you heard about it. Uh, you, you heard Matt talk about it. Some of these West Coast schools that are struggling with admissions and are having to go to international markets to try and increase their tuition, uh, their tuition fees each year. Well, if that dries up, then they have to go back to the drawing board they're not going to be in a position that they can then turn around and give a chunk. It's not going to be 50% like Pac-12 players want, but they're not going to be in a position that they could turn around and give a chunk of money of their revenue to these players. And if they can't do that, then these players are going to walk and they're going to go to different schools. Uh, You're going to see Mountain West schools that these players are going out and doing all of the same things, taking the same risks that Pac-12 players are, and their schools don't have the kind of revenue that they could turn around and give it to a player. So are they going to continue to play for these Mountain West programs? I think that it's cool to hear Matt talk about BYU's financial position at a national level. I mean, Matt talks about church ball. It's very clear he's a member of the church, but he's not a BYU homer by any stretch of the imagination. He's never been here locally, um, and, and he's usually fairly critical. Not usually. He's been critical of BYU in the past. But to hear him at that national level, not just really regurgitate BYU folklore, BYU fan folklore, but for him to say, hey, look, BYU is in a really good position compared to everybody else. It's possible that BYU is in a better position in five years because of all of these things that are happening. They're not bound by a conference. So if their players want to get together and make some demands, that negotiation process is BYU, the university, and the players. That's it. It's a lot easier to find common ground and find a resolution with just two parties. All these conferences, there's a lot of different players. And is it is it unreasonable to think that the player in Washington is going to want different things than the player in Arizona? Yeah, absolutely it is, right? So that's going to be challenging. Revenue is going to be challenging. Um, there's a lot of factors here And it's all kind of coming to a head, I think, in the next couple of years. And BYU, I think, is in a position that they can kind of weather this storm and survive. It's going to be ugly. I think that 2020 is going to suck. We've talked about it. I think 2020 is going to be brutal. But I think the immediate and short-term trials or challenges 
that BYU will face really will set them up for long-term success because they can get through it, they can work with their players, and they can set themselves up to do really, really well in the future. And I really believe that. That's based purely on my speculation. Uh, that's not, you know, any inside information or anything like that. But when I look at things, I take a step back and I objectively look at where BYU sits, what Independence is doing, and the national college landscape, college football landscape as a whole. I think BYU is in a really good spot to survive during all of this craziness. I agree. And I think that is a great note to finish on. Uh, we've been running long. Do you have anything else you want to add? I'm, even though I'm very pessimistic about the 2020 college football season, I am very optimistic about BYU's place in the future of college football and heading into the next round of realignment now that serious doubts have been cast on the entire financial structure of pretty much every school in the country. Yeah, I, that's it, right? I mean, that's really what I agree with. Um, it's an interesting time. You know, even BYU players are currently making demands. They want a renovated locker room, which it's long overdue. BYU's locker room needs to be renovated. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And, and what's interesting is, and I think this is, and I, I know we're trying to end the show, but I think this is a good illustration of how BYU can make progress with their players faster. I don't know if a new locker room is going to happen tomorrow, right? Nobody does. But their players are vocally saying, we want a locker room. The only people that they have to convince are the player or the people who are sitting on the third floor. That's it, right? I mean, it, that's really simple. And if they're able to find funds and find donors to renovate the locker room during the offseason and 2021 rolls around and BYU football players are walking into a new locker room, that shows the current players and future players that, hey, this school is committed to us. They heard us. I guarantee you that the Pac-12 is not going to have a resolution with that Pac-12 united group of 300-some-odd players. They're not going to have a resolution that everybody agrees with in a year. But BYU could. And I think that that is why BYU is really in a unique spot, in a good position, but it is going to come with some challenges. I've been saying for the last few weeks, I do think football happens, and I still do. I just don't know what that means for BYU. I don't think they're going to shut down shop completely, but it's going to be different. It's going to be a challenge for 2020. I don't think there's any question. Okay, joining us next on Give Em Hell Brigham is Matt Brown, jack of all trades. Really, Matt has not tried anything that I'm aware of that he hasn't just been really good at, whether it's building a table, whether it's running a sports blog, whether it's starting his own sports newsletter. Matt's excelled in everything, and I don't need to hear if you if you failed, Matt. Just roll with, we think you're good at everything that you do. <laughs> Thank you for coming on with us tonight. How are you doing? Uh, man, I'm doing great. I, I, I appreciate that intro. We'll just skip right over my church ball career and, <laughs> and, and, and center just on the things that have worked out so far. You know, that's an interesting point you bring up, though. Your church ball career out there back east – all we hear are the crazy stories of church ball in Utah. Is it the same back East? Is it just like crazy nuts? Um, it's, it, it's, I don't think it's quite the same way as it is in Utah. I mean, like that's, I think it's that way for church, everything, right. And you could, you could take whatever it is in Utah and dial it back like 75%. But have I, have I, I seen know. fights? Church ball got canceled it, and would they cancel church ball outright in my stake in California? Oh, really? Because no, of, it, it, because of fights. Yeah, it, 
it, it was it was canceled for a while. My stake in Ohio growing up uh, when I was in when I was in the in the Silver Spring stake uh, just outside of Washington D.C. I definitely saw a fight. Um, and in my stake here in Chicago, it has not been org on an organized level for for a while because of that. You know, you got you got carpeted courts out here, man. Blood's hard <laughs> to get out of the carpet. That's funny, man. No matter where you go, we're all the same. And that's what <laughs> that's what makes us great. Well, hey, Matt. I mean, you you kind of specialize in the off the field aspects of college football and really college athletics as a whole, which I think is awesome. And I know that you are a historian of the game. So the first question I have for you, off the top of your head, how crazy does this 2020 off season and now going into a potential season, how crazy is it compared to other college football seasons that you can think of historically? It's, it's definitely up there. The, the only real analogy I can think of are some of these seasons that happened during World War II, um, where you would have mass game cancellations. Um, you would have you know, teams playing three games a year, four games a year. Lots of teams throughout the country shut down their programs temporarily. A couple of them never, never ended up coming back. Um, and you would have, I think, similar pressures to continue playing college football. It wasn't necessarily – because teams needed the money, the finances of the sport were different, but you wanted to do it to, for patriotic reasons, right? Like, hey, listen, if you weren't playing football, which was so important, it was, you're capitulating to the enemy somewhere. It's almost letting the, the whole terrorist, you know, winning sort of situation here, but like in 1943. So we threw out almost the whole rule book. We, we allowed, you know, two platoon football, which we, we didn't have before. And that's what, what this looks, looks like. It will be interesting, I think, in five years, what permanent rule changes happen after pandemic changes? What permanent NCAA regulation changes happen after this? Do we have anybody stop playing football or start playing football again? There's, I'm not super optimistic about what a 2020 football season is actually going to look like, but I, I do think that there's going to be some big changes, you know, some good, maybe some less good that are going to stick around after, after this season. It's, it's very, very strange. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, maybe not being super optimistic for a 2020 season and, and how that looks like. If, I mean, if you're the college, you know, football commissioner that college football so desperately needs, if 2020 is going to happen, what needs to happen first? In your mind, what needs to happen, whether it be with the virus, whether it be with, uh, you know, standardization or testing and regulation or whatever, what would need to happen to make you feel confident in saying, yes, at some point in September, we're going to have a, a football season? Yeah, it, it would. We'd have to have just a really gigantic changes very quickly. The, the, the number one thing is you'd have to have a substantial rollback of community spread in areas where there are college football programs. It, 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 a lot of this really is independent of what happens on campus at all. You know, I, I, I was talking to an AD about this recently, that in many of these areas at, at for FBS and FCS, you have schools in rural communities where your hospital capacity is simply not very strong. So if you had an outbreak in a place like Starkville, where you may not necessarily be near a bunch of different hospitals, and you have to hospitalize even a small percentage of your, of your athletes or members on campus, that will overwhelm your community. And, and then you, you simply can't do it. You can't do it if, if the hospital capacity is already overwhelmed and your football team's healthy, because then you're risking the, the, the health of those athletes beforehand. And so when we're trying to figure out how we can have college football safely and, and mitigate the spread of the disease, 
So much of that depends on what the disease is doing in that state, in that city, in our country as a whole. And unfortunately, over the last month, the news, in, especially in the Southeast, especially in parts of the Mountain West and in the Great Plains, the news hasn't been very good. So we would need a rollback and we, need, we would need a rollback very, very quickly to make this conversation a little bit easier. The other thing that really has, that has to happen is when students come back to campus or when athletes come to campus, they have to like simulate bubble conditions without an actual bubble. Because where we've seen these outbreaks at Rutgers, at Michigan State, at Louisville today, at Indiana State, these kids aren't generally catching COVID from the locker room. They're catching it because they leave the football facility and they go to a party or they go to someone's house or they have the audacity to act like college students. And that's where everybody gets sick. And with the NBA, we can throw everybody in a bubble and we could pay them a gajillion dollars and you know, barricade them in Disney World. You can't do that for the University of Utah because they're not even the NBA employees. I mean, like those wings are allegedly very good. Um, so so that, that's, that's the big problem. That's what keeps everybody up at night. And I look at this, there might have been some solutions possible, I think, if some of these administrators had taken this much more seriously in May. But there was a lot of magical thinking throughout college football that the heat was going to dissipate corona, or we would know more about it, and it would, be, it would appear less dangerous, or that community spread would decrease this summer, and the opposite happened. And now there's just not very much time. So with long-term changes, I mean, how do you think that this financial storm, I know we've kind of talked about a lot back and forth on this for the last few years about how it really seems like there's a growing financial bubble in college sports as a whole. And, you know, it's kind of been pushed, especially with the NIL legislation that's coming in and players wanting more compensation, rightfully so. And, you know, that money, most programs are running very much at a loss and losing tons of money. So do you think that this, is a day of reckoning where the schools that do stay open are maybe going to act more the way BYU does and try to be more fiscally responsible and not just, you know, handing out $75 million guaranteed contracts to coaches and things like that? Or do you think they'll be right back on their BS as soon as this blows over? Uh, They'll be right back on their BS as soon as this blows over if there aren't forces to rein that in. But I, I do think that there are some of those that are happening. So w- one trend I think it's important for, for sports fans to realize is that a lot of universities, like not just athletic departments, but universities generally, were facing some really tough headwinds before the coronavirus. You know, what's happening at most schools, not BYU, BYU is an exception to this, but most schools is that they're under-enrolled right now. Our country does not produce the same number of college-bound, you know, high school graduates that it did 20 years ago. And a lot of schools have then tried to make up that gap by going after foreign students, you know, kids in India and China and South Korea who uh, typically pay full tuition. And that, that was, that's a been a major recruiting strategy for a lot of, of schools in the Pac-12. And that's become more expensive. That's become more competitive. And now with, with visa changes, uh, it's, it's going to become much harder to do. So a lot of these schools, especially regional state schools, like not state flagships, but like your, your Fresno states and your Weber states and, you know, your Mountain West kind of institutions. Um, or already kind of under the gun financially. And that's important for athletic departments because if you're not getting a major TV deal, chances are you're getting most of your athletic department money or your, your biggest chunk of it from student fees, right? Every kid that enrolls at, say, New Mexico, whether they go to a New Mexico game or not for anything, 
has to pay a couple hundred bucks to the athletic department. You know, the same thing you do with like student government or maybe with public transportation or something. So with the, with the, with coronavirus, one of the big worries is that enrollment is going to drop again. And that a lot of these schools before we even get into anything to do with athletics are already going to be looking at major revenue cuts. Then you factor in the loss of football, the loss of broadcast revenue, the loss of, of tuition revenue, the, the tearing apart of, you know, your apparel contract or your multimedia rights contract. This, that's all, it's all very significant. And, and BYU, I, I think, is, is really one of the few schools that I think is in a, a more stable position because, one, they're one of the almost <laughs> the very, very few schools that's run by a sponsoring institution that has a ton of cash, right? Like not, not illiquid assets, but like actual cash. So they don't have to lay anybody off if they don't want to. Um, and you're right that they, that they uh, have not made the same facility investments or the same fixed costs that a lot of their peer institutions have. So they're going to have flexibility. I know that that's been frustrating as a fan when you get outbid by, by schools that are you know, less prestigious than you for assistant coaches or for facilities or anything, but they're going to have some more flexibility coming out of this. And I don't think that that's going to be true for every other school in the country, including some, some power five institutions, you know, particularly on the West coast where they're going to have uh, really challenging uh, financial restraints in, in figuring out how to come out of this situation. You know, it's a really interesting point, and I think for the last, golly, it's been a decade now since BYU has left the Mountain West and they went independent. I mean, there's been pros and there's been cons. I think anybody objectively looking at independence for anybody not named Notre Dame can admit, yeah. right, that there are good things and bad things and trade-offs, certainly. I, it feels like while the schedule this year has been absolutely blown to smithereens and it's creating some really I think big challenges for Tom Holmo and his staff in the immediate future. It does sort of feel like independence gives BYU some flexibility for the future. And when you couple that with the way that they run their program from a financial standpoint, it does feel like BYU is in a good spot for the future. You know, assuming college football, there's some semblance of college football that looks like what we're used to it looking like a couple of years from now. Would you agree with that? Do you think that independence has allowed BYU to be a little bit more nimble or does that not really play a role here? And if they were in the mountain West, they'd be kind of in the same spot that they would be in anyways. Yeah. yeah I, I, I definitely agree that there are positives and negatives and I've written before and I'm, I'm guessing you two would agree that there's been more positives than negatives. The, the, the coronavirus, everything that's happening right now, I, I think puts them in kind of BOU in a bit more of a unique position, right? One of the big things that you lose as an independent is that you don't really have anybody advocating for you legislatively within college athletics. A lot of these scheduling agreements and, and position, you know, you know, policy positions on name, image, and likeness or what's happening in Washington or what's happening with some of these rules, rules committee and everything, you have a conference commissioner or other people going to bat for you. And here it's become pretty clear, especially as these conferences kind of did every man for themselves, that nobody's looking out for BYU's interests. And even if you're in the Mountain West, as, as you, know, you can have your own opinion about how effective an advocate Craig Thompson is, you would at least have one. The closest thing BYU's had to that advocate has been ESPN. And hey, listen, that's a good guy to have. That's a good group to have in your corner in a world where fans can't really go to games and when nobody really cares about strength of schedule and the broadcast window situation is completely blown to hell. 
that ESPN's a different caliber of advocate, I think. So you can look it back and think like that's that's unfortunate, but also how often does something like this happen, right? It's, it's this is literally a once in a hundred year kind of situation. Um, so I, I wouldn't look at this and think, oh my gosh, BYU's got to be in a conference. You know, we, we've had that debate a gajillion times. If there was a conference that made sense, BYU would be in it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, joining the Mountain West would, I think, put them in, in a similar kind of situation. Because I'm going to be honest with you guys. Regardless of what the Mountain West said today about wanting to play eight conference games and two non-conference games, I feel very confident nobody in that league's playing a full 10-game season. And BYU is, would be facing, on a different scale, schedule instability if they were part of that league right now. Because there are a lot of things, including out here in the West, that are outside of any school's control. Like New Mexico's governor, we, we reported on this, doesn't want college football happening in that state and has already re reached out to those athletic directors. Um, it would not shock me at all if something like that happens in the state of Washington uh, as well. And so it doesn't really matter what conference you're in. If the, if the governor or the public health officials say, no, nah, you can't do this, then you can't do it. Or if you have to have a 14-day quarantine order, you can't do it. And then your affiliation doesn't really matter. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into, oh, my gosh, BYU can't get in any games. Or, oh, my gosh, the Big 12 like, stood them up again. Or Craig Thompson this. Like, that's, that's, this, what's happening right now is much bigger than conference affiliation, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I'm almost kind of grateful for when people bring up is this is like some type of own of like, oh yeah, this proves that BYU should go back to the Mountain West because being in a conference would fix all our problems because it's just kind of like, okay, I know I should just not even bother talking to you at all because you don't understand anything. You're not even <laughs> looking at anything of the big picture here. Um, yeah. But if you were Tom Homo, you know, you don't have those other people rallying around you to try to build out the schedule that you are going to pretend is going to happen. Um, how would you navigate the next few months or kind of what would your primary object objectives be in filling up the seven games that BYU has lost? Look, I, as, as unfortunate as this is at this point, I just don't think that that's realistic because so many of these leagues are not playing out of conference games. And the ones that are for, for broadcast and safety reasons have to front load them. Um, I think there's a pretty good chance we're talking about this Wednesday night. I think by Friday, FCS football is going to get canceled, um, especially after the, the Board of Governors statement today that says there's no championships if 50% of the schools are out. Uh, by my count, I think 41% of FCS schools are already out, and I'm already hearing from two leagues where half their schools are kind of on the bubble right now, so that takes some teams off the table. You know, if, if I'm BYU, I think what I got to do here is just be very honest and upfront with my fans and say, listen, we're, we are planning to, uh, to, to have a season if we can. We're going to be safe. Uh, we're going to honor scholarships for all of our athletes. We're going to do as much training and try to serve their physical, emotional, uh, mental health, and spiritual needs no matter where they are. And we have to realize that what, no matter you know, what had happened to us, some of this stuff is outside of our control. So I would try to keep expectations for this fan base low and over-deliver rather than, you know, leak out stuff about a potential game with Alabama and then get people even more frustrated if that doesn't happen. You know, you, you could say what you will about Homo's leadership, you know, the past you know, six years. I, I can look back at BYU and say that, that there's some, they've done some things extremely well. They've made some great hires. They've been really creative. And maybe there's been some situations where they haven't advocated for them, their needs and effectively and they've been on a different position. But right here, you can have an amazing athletic director. You can have a below-average athletic director. What happens with your football season is ultimately not in anyone's control in Provo, I don't think. 
Well, if there's one thing you could count on, and, and I recognize this is an audio show, so nobody can see me winking or using air quotes, but if there's one thing you can count on, <laughs> it is BYU underselling the the expectations of their program and being completely transparent, I'm sure. Oh, Matt, we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you hopping on. Hey, we extra points, man. It's phenomenal. Um, I love what you're doing over there. I, I love the niche that you, you have found with – uh, the freedom of information requests, that's a grind. I don't think people realize that's not as, that's not as easy as just sending a quick email and then all of a Jeff, sudden you Jeff get a bunch of documents. That. I've tried. Jeff attempted that. I've yeah. tried. It. It's a grind. So I it, love it, what you're doing. Thank, thank you. It, it, a grind is a great way to put it. I feel like for every 10 of these things I send out, I get something useful two or three times. Um, you know, I am, I am thankful for the state of Utah that – um, grandma requests, generally speaking, from public institutions here have, have gone better uh, than in other states, but in a lot of other, especially now, because a lot of these clerks are laid off or working remotely and, and haven't been able to help. But I, I appreciate what you're saying here. This is, uh, we're trying to write about stuff that's um, a little bit undercovered. Um, and we hope that it's useful for people, whether, whether you do for free or paid. I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I do have a story coming out pretty soon that I think will be of specific interest to BYU fans. I actually interviewed Tom Homo last week to talk about what BYU is doing and what we'll continue to do to serve the spiritual needs of their athletes, given that they've been in quarantine or, or how they've managed the past couple of months, because I don't think anyone's written about that right now. And I hope, because I'm so fascinated about what happens in the West generally, I think that's the most interesting place for off the field stories in college football. I, I hope that there'll be more that will be relevant to, to your fans and fans of, of big 12 institutions or big sky institutions. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, tell us how, how can we subscribe? I know that we have a lot of listeners who already know who you are, maybe already are subscribers, but for those who aren't, how can we subscribe? How can we get on board with what you're doing over there? Sure. So you can head on over to extrapoints.substack.com or uh, shoot me a tweet or you know, follow at Matt EP, Matt Brown EP, excuse me, on Twitter.com. Um, Extra Points publishes four times a week, and you can subscribe completely for free. You get two of those emails uh, in your inbox every, every week. Um, they are stories about the, the intersections of higher education policy, finance, sports media, um, hit college football history, demographics, all those things that behind the, behind the scenes that shape what we experience on the field. That's what we write about. For extra points. Um, you can also be a paid subscriber and get all four a week. You get some stickers. You get uh, a podcast every month. You get a little bit of some extra bonuses. Uh, and that pays my bills <laughs> because uh, Vox Media laid me off a couple months ago. So this, this is how I support myself. Uh, you can subscribe for just seven bucks a month or $70 for the entire year. Uh, and that's at extrapoints.substack.com. Awesome. It is, I'm a paid subscriber. It has been great. Uh, so I just want to vouch for that. That it is very good content and everyone listening to this should subscribe. No, th thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And my friend on the off chance that uh, somebody at BYU is listening, uh, I do bulk subscriptions for people with .edu email addresses. So uh, <laughs> drop me, drop me an email. If you want me to go take care of the rest of your department. I do have a couple of people at, at BYU who subscribe. If there are others, let me help you. Thank That's you. awesome. What is, is, can you tell awesome. us more about the intercollegiate, you know, the new sister site or brother site that you have <laughs> joined forces with? Sure. So the, the intercollegiate launched uh, a year and a half ago. It's founded by a fellow named Daniel uh, Libet. Daniel uh, is a New Mexico guy. He founded the website New Mexico Fishbowl and 
really centered on investigative accountability journalism within college athletics. Um, we wanted to merge because nobody knows more about FOIA than Daniel. Um, I publish a lot more, a lot more than Daniel does, and that way we have a website where we can host and and share a lot of the public records that we that we get. So hey, if you want to know you, uh, Gary Anderson's uh, contract at Utah State, and if you want to see the, the game contracts for some of their their future games, I got them up on the website for free. Anybody can go download them, and as I find other ones, I'll share them. I'll share them on there too. Um, and that way, I have somebody who can help edit me. Um, we have a, 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 a way to, I, you know, we had the flexibility for me to write about like short, stupid stuff and also, you know, big, long investigative pieces. And we can start to build something, I think, a little bit more sustainable um, in this economy. It's incredible, man. I mean, really great stuff. Everybody subscribe to Extra Points. Matt, thank you for your time tonight, uh, for joining us from Chicago. We really appreciate you hopping on. Hey, listen, fellas, it's, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Awesome. Take care, y'all. And thanks again for another great show. Uh, please send us Hell End of the Week nominations. We don't want to have to bag. Actually, I could talk bad about the Miami Marlins any day of the I think, week. And- I think we make that commitment that every week we don't have a nomination. We just highlight another awful trade that the Marlins have made in their existence. Okay. I, that's our new segment. In addition to Quarantine Kitchen, we will do our Miami Marlins history lesson of why they are the worst franchise in baseball. Just kick them out. Replace them with the Durham Bulls or upgrade, you know, move the Salt Lake Bees up to the majors and call it a day. Just get rid yeah. of Miami. Yeah. Um, so another great show. We'll be back next week, hopefully with some scheduling news. And if we hear things before then, you can expect to hear it on our board. If you're not a member at Cougar Sports Insider, please come join us. And, you know, let's give them hell this week, Jeff. Give them hell.